Are you people crazy? We live on an island. We live on an island. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. The hurricane of 1900, sometimes known as Isaac Storm or just the Galveston Hurricane, was and remains the deadliest natural disaster in United States history. A fifth of the population of the low-lying barrier island at the southern end of Galveston Bay was lost, and the true cost of this deadly storm is nearly impossible to measure. Why was it so deadly, and how did it become intrinsically linked with the name Isaac Klein? But, before we begin, what's your favorite Galveston landmark? Since jellyfish are not a landmark, I'm going to pick the Bishop's Palace, the famous Victorian mansion in Galveston. It's amazing. Um, For obvious reasons, for those that know me, I'm going to choose the Garden Varine, which was a a garden dance pavilion. Uh, They had uh, outdoor, like, um, bowling, and it was basically an outdoor park that was built by the German immigrant community in the late 1800s, and it's also where I had my wedding reception. It's a lovely place. We were there. Hooray! I'm going to pick something historical for this history podcast and say that I miss the Balinese, the famous nightclub on the Pleasure Pier that uh, hopefully will be rebuilt someday. <laughs> Probably not. It's not just a great ZZ Top song, people. You need <laughs> learn your history. Learn your history. <laughs> well, the Texas Gulf Coast is no stranger to hurricanes. One of the earliest on record is the 1818 storm that ravaged pirate Jean Lafitte's base on Galveston Island. A pair of well-documented storms in 1875 and 1886 effectively wiped the port of Indianola off the map. In all, more than 28 storms struck between 1818 and 1885, including several that caused significant damage to Galveston in 1837, 1842, and 1867. In most cases, the damage was the result of flooding. Galveston Island is essentially a low sandbar only a few feet above sea level. So why then did Galveston feel so immune to calamity in 1900? Just before the turn of the century, the city of Galveston was booming. Its population of over 36,000 people had brought prosperity with them, making it the busiest port in Texas and the state's largest city. She carried nicknames like Ellis Island of the West and Wall Street of the Southwest as immigrants streamed in and business took off. All this business was bolstered, of course, by the fact that the second largest port in the state, Indianola, had folded in 1886. The ports at Houston, Corpus Christi, and Orange Port Arthur were not deep enough to accept the large merchant ships of the day. All of those ships and German immigrants had to go somewhere, and Galveston was the best deep-water port in the state. This prosperity made Galveston the home of many Texas firsts, including a Catholic parochial school, an insurance company, and gas lighting. After the Reconstruction, the first opera house, telephone lines, and electric lights in the state were introduced to the island. Galveston was an extremely cosmopolitan, progressive city that attracted investors and convinced many immigrants to stay and open businesses. Yeah, and the Grand is still there. That's the Opera House. And I remember going to see the play uh, Greater Tuna there when I was a child. A Texas classic. Well, it's a tale as old as time. Prosperity begets complacency. Galveston had already weathered many storms since its official founding in 1839. In this era, the so-called Golden Era of Galveston, Before modern meteorology, no one had any cause to think future storms would be any worse. Some residents 
took the fate of Indianola to heart as an obvious lesson. They suggested building a seawall to bolster the island against the tidal surges of future hurricanes. The majority of the population, however, including the city government, dismissed this idea. The final nail in the coffin of a pre-1900 Galveston seawall was an 1891 article published in the Galveston Daily News by meteorologist Dr. Isaac Monroe Klein, in which he stated, quote, It would be impossible for any cyclone to create a storm wave which could materially injure this city. Who was this Isaac guy, and how has this storm come to bear his name? Isaac Klein was born in Tennessee in 1861. He joined the Meteorological Training Program in the Army Signal Corps in 1882 and earned a doctorate in medicine in his spare time while he was stationed in Little Rock, Arkansas. Klein was sent to head up the Texas branch of the Weather Bureau when it was established in Galveston. He stayed on as the Bureau changed hands from the Army to the Department of Agriculture in 1891. The Weather Bureau had been making great strides in more accurately predicting weather, and Klein himself was one of the first to reliably forecast freezing temperatures. In addition to his duties as chief meteorologist, he taught Sunday school, was professor at the local medical college, and earned a Ph.D. in 1896 from Adran Male and Female College, which we know today as Texas Christian University. Isaac was by most accounts an intelligent and caring man, and in addition to predicting the freezing weather accurately, he also had a lot of success predicting flooding up and down the Brazos and Colorado rivers. That And that was like immediately before uh, 1900. That was like 1899, I think. He sounds like a slacker who never did anything yeah. <laughs> yeah, at just all. Earned a medical degree in his spare time. Just no because he wanted to. So Can, all do, to all you doctors out there, you should have been a meteorologist and a Sunday school yeah. teacher and all kinds of other things. Yes, yeah, it's continuing the tradition of the, the 1800s of any professional man having more than one career. To be fair, any man with a sturdy pair of pliers could call himself a dentist before like <laughs> 1911. True. So. True. Now, Klein felt that floodwaters from a storm surge would glide over the island and dissipate into Galveston Bay behind it. Partially due to these conclusions, development on the island continued, which actually increased its vulnerability. Sand dunes along the beach were cut down to fill low-lying parts of the city, and nothing was done to prepare for future storm surges. There were buildings from homes to hotels to bathhouses built right up on the beaches of the island. Yeah, I mean, they were up on stilts, but, you know, they're still right there on the beach. These are really good stilts. <laughs> yeah. And the water's just going to flow right over, just like, yeah. you know, just yeah, like that, on that's your counter. And, and this wasn't just a, this article that he wrote wasn't just like a short little thing saying, oh, Galveston will be okay. It was a two-page article talking about the extreme impossibility of a right. major storm harming Galveston. From obviously one of the most professionally well, qualified men in the world. He probably also like, you know, drilled holes in people's heads to relieve their... <laughs> Pressures of their humors. I don't know. I mean, we're looking through the lens of history here, but yeah. on the face of it already, it seems suspect. On September 4th, 1900, Klein and his brother, who worked with him in the Weather Bureau, received the first report from the central office in Washington, D.C. that a tropical storm had been spotted moving northward over Cuba. Without our modern satellites and other gear, they really had no way of knowing where the storm was, where it was heading, or how strong it could be. Now, most reports of ocean-borne storms at this time were from captains of ships at sea, and they obviously didn't have a way to send the messages when they were out of port unless they had one of the early radio uh, telegraph machines. There were conflicting forecasts between the meteorologists in Washington who thought the storm was going to turn north along the Atlantic coast and the forecasters in Cuba. One observer there insisted that the storm would continue into central Texas towards San Antonio. In either case, the Weather Bureau was reluctant to issue an official warning. 
They were afraid of panicking the public with words like hurricane or tornado. I don't want to panic the public. Yeah, and again, this was in the early years of the Weather Bureau, and they were really making an effort to control information and to keep people from panicking. That's why, at that time, only the central office could uh, issue an official warning for a storm. Let's see how that works out for them. The conditions in the Gulf of Mexico were ideal for strengthening a storm. Warm water, extended lack of cloud cover leading up to the storm's appearance, and low pressure ensured escalation. Yeah. Uh, eyewitness reports said that the, the Gulf felt like bath water. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge expanse of water with no land yeah. for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So great space for a storm to pick up speed. Throughout the day of September 8th, 1900, the tide and winds increased. It was a Saturday, and in the absence of a warning, most people went about their business as usual. A six-day work week was in fashion at the time, so people were just going about their regular day. Even the rising tide wasn't particularly alarming, as they were used to the occasional light flooding due to the island's low elevation. In the morning, low places three to four blocks from the beach on the southern side of the island were inundated by swells. By 1 p.m., winds were over 50 miles per hour, and many streets were flooded. Winds reached hurricane force by 5 p.m., the highest recorded speed was 100 miles per hour before the anemometer, which is the wind measuring device, broke. Isaac Klein later estimated that the peak wind speed was about 120 miles per hour. At about 6.30 p.m., a massive storm surge swept ashore, almost instantly raising the flood level four feet, putting the entire city under about 15 feet of water. To put this into context, the highest point on the island was only 8.7 feet above sea level at the time, Structures and people were swept away, and the destruction of the city was nearly complete. Those that weren't swept right off the island were often slammed and crushed beneath the debris that used to be their homes and places of business. The modern estimate is billions of dollars in damage, and only slightly less than what we estimate for Katrina. Only the sturdiest buildings were left standing. Most of the city had been pounded apart by surging waves and relentless winds. One of the few ships to survive the storm, the Farabi, arrived in Texas City, even though it wasn't called that at the time, on September 9th with six messengers from Galveston. One of them arrived at the telegraph office in Houston early on the morning of September 10th and sent a short message to Texas Governor Joseph Sayers and to U.S. President William McKinley. Quote, I have been deputized by the mayor and Citizens Committee of Galveston to inform you that the city of Galveston is in ruins. They estimated at the time the death to be around 500, and this was considered to be an exaggeration. The people of Houston knew that a massive storm had blown through. They'd felt part of it. The storm made landfall kind of southwest of Houston and kind of went west of them and north. And workers were almost immediately uh, sent out to provide relief, moving by rail and ship. Uh, They were shocked by the devastation. It's believed now that at least 20% of the island's population, which was about 8,000 people, had been killed. The final estimated death toll of the storm varies between 6 and 12,000. The numbers are hard to estimate because, like many turn-of-the-century cities, there were always a large number of transient and migratory workers, sailors, uh, people coming in on ships that kind of came and went and didn't really stay there. So they didn't really have an accurate count. It may never be known how many were simply swept out to sea without ever leaving record of their passing. More than 30,000 people were left without homes. The bodies of the dead were at first weighed down and taken out to sea. There were just too many to bury. But when they began washing back up on the shore, they decided to erect funeral pyres on the beach or wherever bodies were found. These pyres burned for weeks after the storm. Free whiskey was distributed to help those with the horrible task of laying the dead to rest. 
Within three weeks, though, cotton was once again being shipped out of Galveston, and they began the long, slow process of rebuilding. The Weather Bureau moved its regional headquarters to New Orleans, and Isaac Klein went with it. He went on to have a lustrous career as a scientist and socialite, but even as the direct evidence of the 1900 storm was cleaned up and swept away, the lasting legacy of this tragic disaster was taking shape. And what was the most obvious legacy? The seawall. Beginning in 1902, a 17-foot seawall was erected along the southern coast of Galveston Island to the length of a mile. It's since been extended to 10 miles. Even more dramatic than a 17-foot high, 10-mile-long concrete wall, they raised the entire island by almost 17 feet with dredged sand. It was a massive undertaking that included raising almost 2,000 buildings along with the shift in elevation. Uh, St. Patrick's Church was one such building. It, uh, it weighed about 3,000 tons, and they lifted that entire building so that they could raise the, the island's elevation. There were surviving brick mansions, such as the magnificent Bishop's Palace, and uh, one that I remember touring as a kid was the, uh, the Ashton Villa, which they didn't actually raise that house, but what they did was they filled in the entire basement with sand to you know, be even with, the, uh, with ground level. Together with the seawall, this project was named a National Historical Civil Engineering Landmark by the American Society of Civil Engineers in 2001. So did it work? A storm similar in strength and direction to the 1900 hurricane came through Galveston in 1915. And although it had a storm surge that topped out at 12 feet and pounded the new seawall, only 53 people died and property damage was nowhere near as catastrophic. Of course, a big part of what saved lives was that people quickly evacuated. They had more warning and were better prepared. Unfortunately, another of the lasting legacies of the 1900 storm was that Galveston was confirmed as a risky location for major investments in shipping and manufacturing. Exacerbating the situation was the development of the Houston Ship Channel, which was first dredged in 1909 and again in 1914. Most of the shipping traffic out of Galveston moved to Houston, which was also becoming an oil boomtown. Deepening the channels at nearby Orange Port Arthur and further south at Corpus Christi also diminished Galveston's importance. But while commercial ventures on the island declined, it quickly became a magnet for resort and vacation traffic. Prohibition in the 1920s helped to make Galveston a hotbed for bootlegging and gambling. The former Wall Street of the Southwest became the Sin City of the South. While the specific entertainments have evolved, the city remains a popular tourist destination. One surprising legacy of the 1900 storm in Galveston concerned city government. After all the lives lost and the extensive property damage, citizens of Galveston were worried that their fair city would not be able to recover under the incumbent government, the one that had helped leave them unprotected and unprepared. Initially, a group of business owners, known as the Deep Water Committee, petitioned the governor to set up a commission to govern Galveston while they rebuilt. Opponents rightly claimed it was distinctly undemocratic to appoint an entire city government, so they modified their plan and called for a general election of two to five commissioners. They went forward with this plan about one year following the storm, and subsequent court challenges caused them to open all five positions to election. This new type of municipal government, initially called the Galveston Plan, sometimes referred to as the Texas Idea, and more generally known as the Commission Form of City Government, would become popular across Texas and eventually throughout the entire nation. The commission form of government revolves around a governing commission elected on an at-large basis, meaning everyone votes for everyone. There aren't specific candidates for any particular district. The commissioners then work together to set taxation ordinances and to handle city business. Each commissioner traditionally oversees a specific area of that business, such as public works or finance. 
One commissioner acts as mayor or chairman, but their main function is just to run the meetings. The plan appeared to work well for Galveston, so Houston adopted the new form of government in 1905, followed by Dallas, Fort Worth, El Paso, Denison, and Greenville in 1907. Other cities in the United States saw this as a progressive reform, and Des Moines, Iowa was the first community outside of Texas to adopt commission-style government. By 1920, about 500 cities in the country had adopted this strategy. Notable figures such as Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson thought it was a great idea. Over time, though, this arrangement came to be seen as favoring business and taking power out of the hands of the working class. In addition, the individual interests of each department caused internal disagreement, and without a chief executive to shepherd decisions, there was often gridlock. Eventually, the commission-style structure gave way to the council-manager city government, with Galveston itself making the change in 1960. The council-manager government preserves many of the benefits of the commissioner style, such as at-large voting and nonpartisanship, but backs it up with a manager that can run the city more like a business and ensure that things get done. As of May 1993, there were no longer any true commissioner-style governments in Texas. While the legacy of the 1900 hurricane remains one of tragedy and loss of life, it also contains the story of a determined community that rebounded and thrived. And while Isaac Klein went on to make a name for himself nationally in New Orleans for Texans, and Galvestonians in particular, he will be remembered as the authoritative figure that reassured the public and helped leave the island vulnerable to the deadliest natural disaster in the history of the United States. And, you know, if there's a hurricane coming, you should probably leave. Yeah. That's the most common sense thing, I think, of anybody that, that lives yeah. on the coast. And, you know, we weren't born on the coast. We moved there. We actually moved there right after Hurricane Allen hit, but... Um, I, I just remember there was a big, if a hurricane is coming, we are getting in the car and going. Yeah. And that is that, like there is no, you know, we'll, we'll board it up best we can. We'll put what we can in the car and we're yeah. going. Yeah. But I mean, you have to keep in mind that back in the 1800s, late, late 1800s, early 1900s, the technology and the ability to predict these things was not very good. And so when you're depending on reports of storms out at sea from, you know, you get a, you get a telegram from Cuba that says, hey, there's a storm that's kind of northwest of here, we think. We think it's headed this direction. And then the only other reports you get is if a ship happens to come in from the middle of the Gulf that says, oh, yeah, we went through this storm a couple of days ago. It seemed to be headed this way. That's all you could get. You, oh, no, and you, you didn't know. Absolutely. I mean, the only tools that a meteorologist had at the time was you could, you could measure the dropping barometric pressure. You could look at the behavior of the tides and the waves and the winds. But there really is... Very little predictor. And rainfall, and you could you could get rainfall. Of which, you could get yeah. rainfall, and in all, and even a lot of the stories of other hurricanes, uh, some of these classic hurricanes. You know, we talked about Indianola. We're going to talk about Corpus Christi. We're talking about this one. Uh, it's a sunny day. It's yeah. a beautiful day. Things are going great, and oh, there's a little rain and a little rain, and there's 50 mile an hour winds, and it's 100 mile an hour winds, and then yeah. well, you're and, underwater. And like I said, the the National Weather Service was being very strict. They didn't, weren't issuing warnings except from the central office. And at the central office, they didn't feel there was anything to worry about in Galveston. And uh, we didn't mention it, but Isaac Klein, actually, I think the day before or that morning, like I think early on the 7th, when the, the tides started to, to get to raise, he, um, he did issue a warning, you know, in defiance of the mandate that only the central office could deliver. And that's why some people had evacuated, but not nearly enough. And mm -hmm. those that evacuated barely got out before the storm surge came in and destroyed the bridges back to the mainland. And one train that made, I think they, there's actually a group that took the ferry across to Bolivar 
and got on a train, but by then the storm was hitting and some people got trapped on the train at that point. Well, and this just proves that the hurricanes have a mind of their own and each one is different and each one has a different character and they are, that's what's so devastating about them is they're, even today, there's truly very little predictability that you can ultimately do to say whether a hurricane is, you know, you get some more warning today is really all we you can really see get. Them, we can see them coming, but we can, can't predict them super accurately, although it is getting better. I think what's crazy about this story is the the scope of the destruction and damage. And we've done stories. The loss of life. The loss of life is, is brain just can't wrap around. Well, one day there's... 12,000 people and the next day there's not 12,000 people there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just the 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 logistics of you know we talk about the logistics of just disposal of the bodies and dealing with these mm-hmm. things. I mean we talked about it in a earlier show this year when we talked about Texas City and the industrial accident there and it's not even this kind of scale but still like you just when you looking at any kind of these images or just thinking about the disasters or reading the stories of them. It's just, it's horrifying to imagine living through this kind of disaster where one day it's a pleasant, it's a pleasant island, island yeah. city. It's booming. It's going great. And then the next it's, it's just, it's, it's absolute. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the biggest thing that we've gained as far as hurricanes go is the perspective on history. What's most surprising to me on researching this is that Given what had already happened in the 1800s, the the data they already had of the storms that had hit the coast and hit Galveston, especially the Indianola, just 10 years or so before, they should have known better. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like here's you're not in much better shape than Indianola, really. Um, if a hurricane comes, you are going to be vulnerable to it. It seems common sense to us looking back. Um, but again, they had the chief of the National Weather Bureau based in Galveston. Um, who said, you know, Galveston has nothing to worry about. So if you're part of a prosperous city, a boomtown of sorts on the coast, biggest port in the state, uh, continuing to grow, you're going to be resistant to anything that says, hey, maybe we could lose all this. It was the biggest city in the, t- yeah. in the state at the time. I just want to hear the story of, of the one crazy guy who was like, are you people crazy? Yeah. <laughs> we live on an island. Yeah. We live on an island. Well, yeah. To put it into perspective, um, it is the worst in terms of death toll, it is the worst natural disaster in American history. Yeah. 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which was six years later, obviously half to a quarter, depending on the death toll that you want to look at of what happened in Galveston. Yeah. Um, and you look at pictures of, of San Francisco in 1906 and the the horrific devastation, but Galveston was literally wiped off the map. Yeah. And so imagine imagine the largest city in Texas today, which is Houston, being wiped off the map. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we touched a little bit on why it's referred to as Isaac's storm, and a big part of it is because like I said, he's the one Isaac Klein was the one that wrote the big two-page article mm-hmm. in the Galveston Daily News going on and on about how they were not in danger. Um and so people, I think there're a lot of people that feel he was he should have especially when the evidence started to mount to the day before that he should have been more active in warning people and trying to evacuate the island. And there are reports he wrote in his own autobiography that that day he and his brother went out in the morning and tried to warn people and tell them to evacuate. But oddly, no other survivors um, can really back up that claim. So we really just have his word that he went around and told people. 
I promise. I promise you. I um, was there, trying to help you. There is a really great uh, book by Eric Larson called uh, Isaac Storm, which is a wonderful account that he really goes into detail on. Um, he kind of researched Isaac Klein's life and went through his journals and whatever evidence he could find to try to try to really get inside this guy's head and figure out, okay, what was going on in this guy's mind to make these decisions that he made. It is a fantastic book. Eric Larson also wrote the devil in the white city. I think we also talk about one of the questions that has come up to us is what's the long-term impact of the 1900 storm on Texas. And so one of the immediate impacts that we talked about was that they raised the whole island up by yeah, I mean, 17 feet. Is that it, right? Yeah, yeah 17 about 17 feet. feet. And that was something that I grew up learning. And it's just, it's, unless you really think about it, unless you, it really hits home when you go to Galveston and you're standing on the island and you, you look at the scale of it and you realize that, wait a minute, they dug up <laughs> enough mm. sand out of the bottom of the ocean to raise this entire island 17 feet. That's yeah. a lot of sand. Mm. Basically, from where the beach is, Right. Up to the top of the seawall right. is how much they raise the island. Right, you go down steps to get yeah, to get to the, the beach. Yeah, and I mean that's just it's mind-boggling. That's mm-hmm. a huge project. Um, but you know we talked about the city being wiped off the map. Well, there's a bunch of buildings that survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, we men- I mentioned the Garden Brine at the beginning beginning of the show. Um, that was actually built in the 1880s, I believe, and um, it was significantly damaged in the storm of 1900, but it survived and they rebuilt it. Um, there were the the large brick Victorian mansions like Bishop's Palace, Ashton Villa. There were a bunch of those along Broadway that all survived. The big Catholic churches. Big Catholic church. Um, and there, and there, were, there were other businesses and some buildings that did survive, mm-hmm. mostly those obviously towards the center of the island where it was, was the highest. But it was the strong brick buildings yeah. that were not. Yeah, all but the wooden buildings, even all the buildings that were built on stilts by the beach, the water was so high and the winds were so strong that they did not survive. And we've... We talk about the destructive power of a hurricane, and those of you that don't live where hurricanes hit, um, you may know of the destructive power of tornadoes, which are extremely dangerous. Um, I wouldn't mess with those either. They're but, dangerous, but they're not on the scale of a sharknado. <laughs> right. <laughs> but with hurricanes, you get the one-two punch of wind and water, especially along the coast. And that's basically what happened in the 1900 hurricane mm-hmm. in Galveston is you had these sustained winds of up to 120 miles per hour and a massive storm surge that between the wind and the water basically just flattened everything. And then like the first line of houses would go from the wind and then the water would push them into the next line of houses. And that was basically a big, big arm of destruction that wiped mm-hmm. across the island. Well, then and it's, it's kind of, you know, if you think about like the, the wind up on the pitch kind of thing of it's, it's the tail of the whip is coming around and it's, it's the edge of that storm is blowing hundreds of miles an hour and it's, it's traveling along that sort of whip and over the ocean, it's just getting empowered by, by mm-hmm. the warm water. And then as it gets closer to the shore, they actually contracts and picks up speed. And then when it finally does hit the shore, you, you're just, yeah. it's a collective um, it's an unbelievable collective amount of energy that hits that hits the shoreline when it finally does. Mm-hmm. If you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, that's the thing that's so dangerous about the hurricane is everybody says, "Oh, you see the tornado on TV and it it seems dangerous and stuff." With the hurricane, it's just unbelievable wind. There's unbelievable tides and smashing water, and you everything is raised up, mm-hmm. and you just you're just going to get washed away in in this kind of 
insanely great storm. Right. And Texas, you know, Atlantic hurricanes are always rotate in a counterclockwise manner. And so it's that, like you said, that curved arm is always going to hit anything that's on a, uh, a north by northwest angle. Well, the Texas court, the Texas Gulf Coast it curves up at a north by northwest direction or north north by northeast direction well and you can and it's a perfect shape and a perfect space it's a target it is a massive huge target well, for we these have storms. a big we have a large coastline in texas but but it's in, it's interesting because you can see stories and pictures though and, and hear stories of people who are on the southern side of the hurricane where they say the tide went out yeah the yeah. tide went out like 36 feet like mm-hmm. there's it's where did all the water go because it, the, there's so much force that it literally sucks up the gulf from one side and moves it to the other side so yeah and the storm of 1900 galveston was on the north side of that spiral mm-hmm. and thus got the worst of it and and i think so the long-term impacts of the galveston hurricane really to this day at least until katrina and even even with Katrina, it is the yardstick by which a destructive hurricane is measured. And that's always the thing that Texans kind of go with. I grew up in a lot of my life in North Texas in Tornado Alley. And so you really didn't have any prediction of a tornado other than a thunderstorm. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's a big tornado. Yeah, because what, what you see with a tornado is you see a relatively high amount of destruction in a small area. concentrated area. Right. A hurricane, you see massive destruction over a massive yes. area. And so you guys had the experience of evacuating every couple of years or every well, year. You would was... hear, well, and there's, it's a cyclical thing because the years we were on the coast from 80 to 85 no hurricanes came even close to Corpus when I lived there at the time. Yeah. So it really depends on when and where you're living mm-hmm. um, because because they do tend to be cyclical. Well, my And my wife's family is from Orange, and she doesn't remember except maybe one time evacuating from the hurricane. But since Katrina, everybody's evacuated every single hurricane yeah. because— Yeah, and speaking of which, you know, we kind of got complacent again in the modern era mm-hmm. where— um, People didn't always evacuate. It's like, oh, things aren't that bad. I'm going to ride it out. Yeah. And then 2005 comes along, and we had four massive hurricanes at the end of hurricane season in 2005. Mm. In August and September, there were four. There was Hurricane Emily, Katrina, Rita, and Wilma all got to what's called a Category 5 storm, Mm -hmm. which is sustained winds over 157 miles per hour. They didn't make landfall at that size, but they were that size at one point. And so, and they all three had, they all four had different characteristics because yeah. Katrina caused damage that Rita did not, but Rita caused damage that Katrina didn't. So yeah, and so people didn't really evacuate for Katrina as well as they should have, but two weeks after Katrina hit, Rita came, um, came right into the Houston area, and everyone evacuated. It was the largest evacuation in U.S. history. Well, so here's another big Texas. First, <laughs> mm-hmm. two things that might be interesting to people who aren't in Texas and who don't get down to the coast, um, you will see just driving around, you will see all of the hurricane evacuation route signs are mm-hmm. contraflow, yeah. are all up. And yeah, it's contra. So when, and then the other part is, is that when they're doing evacuations, all roads lead from Houston. Right. There's no yeah. roads yeah. In yeah. When coming I, in. When they, I say contraflow, that's the concept that when it's time to evacuate, they take the southbound and the northbound lanes, and all you are is northbound or westbound. 
you're moving out of the area, both sides of the freeway. Yeah, and if you want to see what the end of the world is going to look like, look at a hurricane evacuation yeah, from Houston w- when, they, when there are like 16 lanes of traffic well, all the, full. The, wor- <laughs> the worst really was uh, the evacuation for Hurricane Rita. Uh-huh. Um, my mom and my dad were both stuck in traffic during that from Texas City. They were leaving Texas City. They were pulling the they were pulling the camping trailer behind one car uh the just the cargo trailer behind the other my mom was stuck in traffic uh somewhere northwest of houston on i-10 i believe um she was stuck out there for it was a 35 hour road trip from texas city to austin yeah 35 hours on the road she almost ran out of gas at least once yeah my brother came from west columbia which is near like like yeah like jackson and it was 20 hours going to just to well, but but, but that massive evacuation meant that the death toll from Rita was extremely low. Yeah, and actually most of those were from a bus fire just south of Dallas yeah. of evacuees. So well, way to bring it way to bring way it to bring it down way to, to the ground. <laughs> no, so all right. Anything else we want to cover on this one? No, I think I no, think that this um, is this is a great great topic that we've that we've talked about. We we wanted to do this actually from the very beginning was the Galveston storm, because yeah. it is well, such a central event in Texas history. Two of the interesting things that came out of the research for this is, one is just more detail on the uh, what they call the open era of Galveston, mm-hmm. which is uh, right after the storm up through uh, the 1920s, mm-hmm. and the whole uh, speakeasy culture that developed in uh, Galveston during that time, and I'm looking forward to doing more, nice. talking more about that. I Anything smell a goes. future episode. Yeah. Anything goes! But the second big thing that I had no idea until I researched this was the whole commissioner style of government, how that started after that storm. And that that's a really fascinating thing because that had, you know, national implications. You know, that's that's something that started something that started in Galveston and spread all over the country. It was relatively short lived in the long run because it has its drawbacks, but um, you know, there's but something it was, else. It was very tied to the progressive era yeah. of politics. Yeah. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. Or just a rating. It really helps our show get noticed and gets us a bunch of new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.